it would be anachronistic to say that in today's scripture, we find the people of God in an election year. What we know as democracy and democratic elections are entirely unknown in the biblical world, which is more a world of tribes and kings and pharaohs. But if we think of election in its general sense as a choosing, we could say that we find the people in a moment of election. In that sense, we find them in a moment of choosing. We could also say that we find them in a moment of constitutional crisis. Their government is broken. The people have lived under corrupt, abusive leaders for far too long, and they say, Samuel, God, give us a king. Let us choose. We choose a king. Their constitutional crisis brings them to a moment of choosing. We sit here in an election year, perhaps the most important election in our lifetime. We're not yet in a full-blown constitutional crisis, but let's say some true things. We are apprehensive. We have a president who has suggested that he might not follow a constitutional transition of power. This week, we have a white terrorist militia arrested as they planned an armed revolt. So I thought it might be good in this our season of choosing to spend some time with our ancient siblings and theirs and to look for a word for this aspect of our long haul. As we enter this morning's scripture, the people are responding to an enduring experience of abuse of power. Over the past few weeks, we've journeyed with them through their history. They've lived enslaved under Pharaoh. God has led them up and out into freedom through the wilderness, providing manna in the morning and water from the rock. And with the gift of the Ten Commandments, God says to them, this, this is how free people live. Live this life of trust and love with me and with each other. And by this morning scripture, they have settled in the land and they're now living under the rule of something called judges, tribal leaders. The book of Judges recounts their travails, life under judge after judge, most with a reign of violence and lawlessness and injustice. The history of these judges is punctuated again and again with a summary statement. In those days, Israel had no king and everyone did as they saw fit. And then we come to Samuel the prophet and his sons. His sons are judges and they are just plain corrupt. The people have had enough so they go to Samuel and they say to him, go tell God that we want a king. We no longer want to be different from the other nations like this. We want a king just like all the other nations. And that irks the prophet Samuel, but he goes and tells God. And surprisingly, God says, okay, okay, give the people what they want, but make sure they know this. This is what a king will do. A king will take you to war. A king will conscript your sons into military service. A king will take your daughters into forced servitude. A king will take your fields and your vineyards and you will plow his land. A king will seek their own gain, not the good of the people. A king will force on you a world that favors a powerful, wealthy few, all at your expense, at the expense of your families and your well-being and your life. This is what a king will do. This is what kings do. You see, God points out to the people the dangers of concentrating power over in the hands of one or a few. God tells them the human truth that power, 
unchecked in the hands of one or a few always, always, always results in violence and depression and war. This is not news. This is the way the world is. Century after century, millennium after millennium, power over, concentrated in one place is where tyranny is born. This universal truth expressed in this ancient text also thousands of years later terrified and animated the framers of the United States Constitution. We know the list of revolutionary complaints that we learned in school and we also know the colonial abuses that they didn't teach us. But at the heart of it all, at the founding of this nation was an experience of an abusive colonizing king. King George III, whom history has come to call Mad King George, whose abuse of power was exacerbated by his mental illness. Perhaps above all, the framers of the Constitution feared the rise of yet another tyrant, so they constructed the U.S. government with checks and balances on power. The best known one is probably the separation of branches of government to balance each other. Legislative power vested primarily in an elected legislature, a president with limited power to veto and to administer those laws as Congress has legislated them, and a judiciary to check them both. The primary check on the abuse of power, though, was vested in a system of elected representation. Representatives and presidents could be voted in and voted out. But the voting initially envisioned in the United States Constitution was nowhere near a universal right to vote. The Constitution protected and preserved the institution of slavery, and the privilege of voting was limited to white men who owned land. What's more, even that vote was mediated through a Senate and an Electoral College, both constructed to advantage and protect the interests of sta states that enslaved human beings. At the inception, the Constitution preserved power over and placed it in the hands of the few particularly to protect slavery. With all of its worthy promises, the Constitution also preserved more than a bit of tyranny, power in the few at the expense of so many. And we know that it took a civil war and a series of constitutional amendments to expand the promise of a vote to include more than white men who owned property. The 14th Amendment promised equal protection of the laws, and the 15th Amendment provided that the right of citizens to vote shall not be abridged by the United States or any state on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. But even that didn't yet include women, which would take the 19th Amendment in 1920. And we know that even with all those promises in place, the right to vote has never been actually universal. In fact, it has remained under fairly constant attack. The vote, or the right to vote, is perhaps our most important constitutional check on the abuse of power. Remember, power over, concentrated in the hands of the few, tends toward tyranny. The right to vote, extended to all people, disperses power. It vests judgment and the government of the people in the people, all the people. The right to vote, is a threat to those who would abuse power. It holds them accountable. It says to those elected to positions of power who then abuse that power, you, sir, can be removed. If you wanna get a glimpse of how much of a threat the right to vote is to those who would abuse power, 
you only need to look at the energy that has been ex expended over the years to suppress it. We know that the 15th Amendment's guarantee of a right to vote to those who had been enslaved was met immediately with massive resistance. The powers of white supremacy mobilized to suppress the right to vote by erecting hurdles and barriers to voting. Some were plain on their face, grandfather clauses. Grandfather clauses provided that you could only vote in an election if your grandfather had voted, plainly cutting off free people whose parents and grandparents had been enslaved. Some efforts at suppression tried to conjure up some patina of reasonableness. There were literacy tests and understanding tests, laws that required that a voter be able to read and explain various provisions of state and federal law. The white supremacists said, oh, oh, but a voter should be able to show that they understand the laws. But of course, white voters were given simple laws and little was expected of them by way of explanation. Black voters were given long, complicated passages. Think, think of being asked to explain any number of the initiatives that will be on the California ballot in a few weeks. I couldn't. And even when they offered substantial answers, they were summarily failed and turned away from the polling place. And there was the poll tax, a tax on the right to vote that was often cumulative and disenfranchised those who struggled most to make ends meet. These voter suppression tactics thwarted the 15th Amendment's promise of the right to vote from becoming a reality for Black American citizens. By 1940, only 3% of age-eligible Black Americans were registered to vote in the South. It would take the Civil Rights Movement and the courage of so many Black Americans and their justice co-conspirators to bring about the Voting Rights Act of 1965. The Voting Rights Act provided substantive protections against the most egregious of these voter suppression measures, and it also required for a time the pre-clearance of any new requirement or process that might limit or impede the right to vote. But that part of the Voting Rights Act was struck down by the Supreme Court in 2013, and we have witnessed a new emboldened era of voter suppression. What once took the form of literacy and understanding tests now takes the form of voter ID laws and voter roll purges and so many other machinations. Voter ID laws require the presentation of specified forms of government-issued ID before a registered voter can actually vote. Proponents of these laws invoke the specter of voter impersonation fraud. Even though study after study has shown that voter impersonation fraud is exceedingly rare, few people try to show up at the polls and vote as if they were me. What those studies also show, though, is that these requirements disproportionately disenfranchise Black voters and other voters of color. Voter purge laws require that registered voters, those who have, have passed the hurdles and met the hurdles, that even they be purged from the voting rolls if they haven't voted in a specified period of time, often two years or so. So that they approach this constitutional right to vote with a use it or lose it mentality. These efforts, though, target and disproportionately impact voters for whom it may be difficult to get away from work or voters who have transportation issues. These voter suppression measures target minority voters, young voters, low-income voters, and the less mobile elderly voters in particular. 
As scholar Carol Anderson explains, they do this by targeting socioeconomic characteristics and then offering seemingly race-neutral justifications like administrative efficiency to cover their discriminatory intent. In all these years, the playbook hasn't changed much. When I think of these efforts over the years to suppress the vote, I think of my friend Hattie Mae Fielder, who would have turned 100 this year. Hattie Mae lived through much of what we've been talking about. Born in Alabama, she was part of the Black migration north to Michigan, where she worked her whole life and then returned to Tuscaloosa to care for her mother. I met Hattie Mae in her late 60s and knew her through her 70s and her 80s and on into her 90s. When I knew Hattie Mae, she didn't drive, and she didn't need or have a driver's license. She would have needed someone else to take her to the polls. Some election years, her health would have been good enough for her to go to the polls, and other years, not so much. These voter suppression efforts and laws, voter ID laws and voter purge laws, they are intended to disenfranchise people like Hattie Mayfielder. Over the past year, I've preached several sermons where we've talked about the entrenched systems of American racism and white supremacy. The systems that perpetuate and institutionalize our racism even beyond individual racist action. What we see here is yet another system constructed and maintained to keep all of those other systems intact to prevent by all means necessary, the people, and particularly Black people and people of color from using voice and vote to stand against the concentration and abuse of power. And this scripture shouts to us, this is what kings do. This is what power overdoes. This is how tyranny is born and nurtured, how it thrives over the years. Scripture often offers us a glimpse of what is true about us and about humanity. And, and we come to scripture always, always for a word of grace, for a word of life, a word for the long haul. So, so where's that word here? Well, this scripture offers us a word of agency and a word of ultimacy. First, the word of agency. The people in the scripture stand in a world where their government is broken, where their officials are abusing power, and where the failure of government is harming the people. When they ask for a king, it's not surprising that God offers them a lengthy critique of kingship. What is surprising is that God says, okay. God leaves the decision and the responsibility with them. God honors their agency, their ability and capability to participate in the working out of life together. No, there is no judge that will fix this for you. There is no king. Watch out for both. But God says, don't forget, I am here. Remember, I have shown you how free people live. It's as if God is signaling that ultimately, the people will need to step up and step out. God leaves it with the people. And the Constitution does something like that too. Almost before the ink was dry on the Constitution, the framers knew that it was not enough. And so they added more protections against tyranny and abuse of power in those first amendments. The right 
and responsibility of free speech. The right and responsibility to petition the government for redress of grievances, the right and responsibility of a free press, the right and responsibility to assemble and to take to the streets, the right and responsibility to vote. It's in moments like these where our life of faith and our public life converge. God honors our agency, but it's not agency to do as we will. It is agency to work for the good, for the public good, for the good of all people. That's why this congregation's work on voting rights over this past year has been so important and why it is not finished yet. Folks in this congregation have been working with Reclaim Our Vote as part of a larger community nationwide, working to make sure that those who have been removed from voting roles know that and have the chance to get their names back on the rolls and vote. I checked in yesterday with Lisa De La Valle, who's organized and encouraged that effort. And as of September 23rd, folks associated with this congregation had sent 1,760 postcards encouraging folks in Georgia and Mississippi and Florida and Texas and other states to check their registration status and to vote. That effort has also included phone calling and letter writing to make sure that folks have the resources and the support they need to exercise their right to vote. God gives us agency, the ability to create meaning in the world with the lives we live, to speak up, to mobilize communities, to hold our leaders accountable and to vote. In the system of government that we have chosen and then broken, God empowers us empowers us and calls us to do better. God calls us to do good. And a word of ultimacy. In the second act of the musical Hamilton, the playwright Lin-Manuel Miranda quotes George Washington quoting the Bible as George Washington dreams of the future that they are working for. Micah 4, verse 4. Everyone shall sit under their own vine and fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. George Washington quoted that verse from the prophet Micah over 50 times in his written letters and addresses. In Hamilton, Lin-Manuel Miranda voices that vision in the black and brown bodies of the actors who tell the story of the founding of this nation. And the prophet Micah's vision is even more expansive than that. Micah says this, in that day, God will rule the nations. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Neither will they learn war anymore. Everyone will sit under their own vine and fig tree and no one will make them afraid. Yes, today's scripture tells us what kings do. But what's more important is what God does through the long haul. Yes, this scripture speaks of the power of kings, but what's more important is the sovereignty of God. Friends, what kings do is never the ultimate word for us. God says to God's people, yes, this is the way of kings, but remember, here is the world that I am making. 
I am the God who brought you up out of slavery and into freedom. I am the God who will bring you back when your kings lead you into exile. I am your God. You are my beloved people. Honor me and honor each other. Honor mothers and fathers and families. Don't lie. Tell the truth. Give every worker a Sabbath rest. Honor the dignity and humanity of all people. Remember, this is how free people live. This is the world I am making. This is our long haul together. And then God empowers us, empowers us together to mend and to tend, to heal, to repair, to establish justice, to make meaning and peace, to speak up, to do the work, and to vote. God empowers us and invites us together to tear down what needs tearing down and to build with God this new world where everyone, everyone lives free. <laughs>